A new twist in Donald Trump's classified documents case kind of sounds like a game of Clue. The lead starts right now. A plumber, a maid, and maybe even a chauffeur. The names from Mar-a-Lago who could soon be key witnesses in a criminal case against the former president. And a CNN exclusive Kevin McCarthy one month after his fall as Speaker of the House and not holding back on the so-called crazy eight who voted him out. They care a lot about press, not about policy, so they, they seem to just want the press and the personality. Plus, the political stunner Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he won't run for re-election, so will he run for higher office? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we start with our law and justice lead and brand new exclusive CNN reporting about who could be called to testify in Donald Trump's classified documents trial. From a plumber to a driver to a woodworker to former White House staffers. Now you may recall the former president is accused of mishandling classified information after he left office. The FBI executed a search warrant at Trump's Mar-a-Lago property in August of 2022, believing that despite a subpoena, Trump didn't return classified material that belonged to the federal government. Well, according to the indictment, the FBI says it found boxes of classified documents in the storage room at Mar-a-Lago, in the grand ballroom, and in a bathroom. Trump's federal indictment included photos of the documents inside Mar-a-Lago and revealed some of the material included information on U.S. defense and nuclear capabilities and on the militaries of foreign governments. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, walk us through this new reporting, these possible witnesses who really were the eyes and ears of Mar-a-Lago. Pam, eyes and ears is the way to put it. It's a plumber, a maid, a chauffeur, a woodworker. People that Paula Reed and I were able to confirm uh, are very likely witnesses, people that investigators had already spoken with and could be calling at trial to testify against Donald Trump and others. The people who were not just around Donald Trump on a day-to-day -day basis, but were noticing things around the club property. They were aware that visitors were coming in and out. And an example, the woodworker that we learned about, a man uh, who was installing crown molding in the bedroom of Donald Trump and noticed some peculiar stacks of papers in that room, wasn't sure what they were, what appears to have been classified records uh, that he at one point thought were movie props. He wasn't sure, but they were suspicious right. enough that he talked to investigators about it. That's the sort of thing that prosecutors could be presenting at trial just to highlight how unsecured Mar-a-Lago was once you were inside and how accessible these documents were that Trump kept and is accused of criminally mishandling, not giving back to the federal government after he leaves the presidency. Right. I mean, federal prosec prosecutors are no doubt relying on these, what, 150 employees who work at Mar-a-Lago, like that woodworker, like the housekeeper, trying to piece together what exactly happened with the former president and his handling the classified information. And it's not just those employees, right? You have Secret Service agents. You have an Australian businessman who could also be called to testify. Right. What we've been able to understand is that it's not just these 150 or so employees that were working at Mar-a-Lago as contractors, full-timers. There's also Secret Service service agents that be, could be called to testify as prosecution witnesses. There are former intelligence officials. There are to top aides of Donald Trump in the political sphere and also in his business world. Uh, but one of the things to note here is that not all of these people might be called. And it's possible that none of these people could be called before the election because right now mm -hmm. the trial is set for May, but we are still waiting to see what Judge Eileen Cannon is going to do. Does she move the trial? 
after the presidential election next year, and thus would we not be hearing from these people about what it was like at Mar-a-Lago after the Trump presidency? Right, learning about the presidential candidate's behavior during this, right, before the election. So we'll have to see, of course, Trump once it moved after. We'll see what the judge decides on this. Caitlin Bolands, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes and Ellie Honig, for, former federal prosecutor. So Ellie, how valuable can these types of witnesses be for prosecutors? Help us understand the significance of this. Well, Pam, in my view, these could be ideal witnesses from a prosecutor's perspective for a few reasons. First of all, they're normal folks. They're not D.C. insiders. They're maintenance workers, woodworkers, pool staff, people who just work every day. They'd be relatable to a jury. Second of all, by all appearances, they haven't participated in any wrongdoing or criminality. They're people who happen to be in Mar-a-Lago and see and hear things that are relevant. And that brings me to the third point, which is access. These are people who are literally on the inside. They're inside Mar-a-Lago. And sometimes, even as in the case of the crown molding worker that Caitlin talked about, get to go into restricted places where people ordinarily wouldn't get to go in. And so their testimony really could be very, very valuable to prosecutors here. Yeah, I mean, one of them is a housekeeper who, who cleaned the former president's bedroom, right? Like you said, these are people who have access that typically employees may not have. And so, Kristen, on that note, how has Trump world been preparing for all of these witnesses to possibly share what they know? Well, Penn, the one thing to keep in mind here is that Trump's legal team knows who the witnesses are. Remember, Trump has been ordered not to communicate about the case with any of the potential witnesses. So in order to do that, they have to actually know who those witnesses are. So the number one objective there is finding out what exactly they know. Now, some of that's going to be easier than others. For example, we know that many of the people who work for Mar-a-Lago, who work for Donald Trump, are actually being represented by mm -hmm. lawyers who are being paid for by Donald Trump. That's going to be the easy part. They know that those people were witnesses. They know what exactly they said. It's the other people that's going to be a little bit harder, the people who they're not sure exactly what it is that they know. They don't have any communication with their lawyers. That's where the real preparation comes in, trying to piece that together. And so, Ellie, uh, based on what Kristen said, look, this is complicated. I mean, many of these potential witnesses, they are people who still work at Mar-a-Lago, rely on their work for their livelihoods. Trump-aligned entities are paying for some of their lawyers. So, I mean, how valuable will these witnesses potentially be in that context? Well, it certainly puts these witnesses in a difficult position. Anytime someone is having their counsel paid for, by somebody else. First of all, it's a deterrent to cooperate because naturally someone in the position of a less powerful, less wealthy witness like these people will fear that if they tell the truth and it's harmful to the boss, word will make its way back up to the boss. The second concern is they could lose their lawyers. Donald Trump and his affiliated organizations could decide, it's within their rights to decide, we're no longer paying for your lawyers. These folks would then have to go out and get their own lawyers, which can be mighty expensive. We've seen this over and over again in Trump world. We've seen people who were reluctant to come forward at first while represented by Trump-funded lawyers, Cassidy Hutchinson mm -hmm. being one example, and only after they got away and got their own lawyers are they fully able to come free. So it's absolutely a complicating dynamic, but it is capable of being overcome. Kristen, there are a wide range of possible witnesses here. Your reporting includes that Trump went ballistic when investigators asked to speak with the maid who cleans his bedroom. Which witnesses are Trump most worried about? 
Well, look, there's two sides of the coin here. One, of course, as Ali mentioned as well, these people who have this enormous amount of access. What exactly did they see? What exactly are they going to say? But the other part of this is anyone who is no longer in Trump's orbit. Those are the people who are going to be more complicated for Donald Trump and his legal team to get to because it's still about figuring out what exactly they know what exactly they're going to say. And if there are people who, one, ended relationships within Mar-a-Lago or with the former president on not great terms, that's a possibility. Anyone who has not stayed within the graces of Donald Trump or his world, that's another possibility. That's where the real concern is going to come in. Are there people, one, we don't know what they're going to say. We can't reach them. We don't know who their lawyers are. Or are there people who have essentially turned on the former president? That's something else to look into. And then, of course, this is all against the backdrop of all these other trials and cases, right? You have that civil fraud trial underway in New York right now where Trump is accused of lying about the value of his assets. Trump's defense is scheduled to start Monday. And now we know their first witness will be Donald Trump Jr. Ellie, what do you make of that? Well, it's an interesting decision. What this tells me is that Donald Trump's team has something more they want to get out of Donald Trump Jr. There was something that they didn't have the opportunity to ask him or when he testified earlier this week or that did not occur to them to ask him. Because what happened earlier this week is the AG called Donald Trump Jr. as a witness. Donald Trump's team could have cross-examined him then, but opted not to. So now they're saying, well, we want him to be our first defense witness. The advantage of doing it that way for the defense is you will now have this witness as a blank slate. So Donald Trump's lawyers can ask Donald Trump Jr. essentially anything they want within the realms of relevancy, but it gives them a sort of broader swath that they can go through with Donald Trump Jr. It tells me they're trying to build an affirmative defense. They're not just going to sort of demur and hope for the best. And we'll see how much different his demeanor on the stand is when he's on direct exam from friendly lawyers than when he was essentially being examined by the other side, by the AG's lawyers last week. Uh, my guess is it's going to be a little different. Probably. <laughs> Ellie so. Honig, uh, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. And up next, the surprise announcement from Senator Joe Manchin. He will not run for re-election how the move puts his Democratic Party in a bind as it heads into the critical 2024 election year. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I have made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's surprise announcement today. He will not run for re-election. This will clearly fuel questions about his presidential ambitions, but his decision will immediately hit Democrats. In fact, it already is. They are hoping to keep control of the Senate after the 2024 election. But as we know, right now they have a, a slim majority in the Senate, and this is a big blow for them. I want to bring in CNN's Manu Raju. So, Manu, how big of a loss is this for Democrats? Uh, it's a huge loss. I mean, there has been some expectation that he was unlikely to run. He's 76 years old. He was already facing the prospects of a very difficult re-election bid, facing Jim Justice, the, the sitting governor, and who has his own primary, but he's favored in that primary. It's a conservative state. But the fact that he's 
he's not running makes it almost certain, Democrats will concede privately, that this is going to flip to the Republican side. And then where does that leave them? Then it's a 50-50 Senate. They already have incumbents running in red states in Montana and Ohio. That's going to be difficult to hold both of those seats. And then also in key states, Democrats have seats in Wisconsin and in Michigan and Pennsylvania and then Arizona, the independent Senator Kirsten Sinema. What will she do? That's a complicated state as well. So the map is difficult for them. They really only have two Republican incumbents that they could pick off. Ted Cruz in Texas, Rick Scott in Florida. Those are difficult states for Democrats, which shows you the decision by Manchin has huge ramifications for the map and also for the first two years of either Joe Biden's second term or a new president. Huge implications. And let's also talk about this exclusive interview you did with the ousted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he is still clearly very angry at those who ousted him from his speakership. Yeah, he said there should be consequences for those eight members who pushed him out. He partic particularly at Congresswoman Nancy Mace says she doesn't deserve to be reelected. He also went after Matt Gates, who led the charge, said that the, the Republicans and the House would tremendously benefit if he were no longer in the House. And he also indicated that there's a long ways to go in healing the GOP divisions. It really shows the conference is not united. And, uh, it hasn't solved the problem if those they had taken out and myself and you just put somebody else in and you haven't dealt with the consequences um, for those who put us in this place. And I mean, that's why you look, we're still wondering whether government's going to be shut down or not. That, that's a real challenge. And we're going to have to heal ourselves to be able to serve the people. But won't the speaker confront the same problems that you had? No. Um, look, you get a honeymoon. Um, but it was personal, it was about an ethics complaint, um, and they can't go through it again. I mean, think about how long it took last time. So do you think they would do that again? And I don't think, I think the Democrats also realized that it wouldn't be smart for the body itself. I mean, so even if he goes and, and relies on Democratic votes the way you had to do it, you think that he would be safe and not be pushed out of the oh. speakership? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think anybody can make a motion to vacate for the rest of the term. I, I, think, I think he's safe regardless. You really think that these, if, they, if he does something that upsets them, that nobody will try to push him out for the rest of the Congress? No. Why? What, what gives you that confidence? Who are you going to replace him with? You already taken out Steve Scalise. But some of the, they don't seem to care and think about this, the long-term strategy of this stuff. This is too important. So that part is actually significant at this moment because they got to decide how to avoid a government shutdown by the end of next week. Will Mike Johnson, the new speaker, try to keep the government open by passing a bill that relies on Democratic votes? Mm -hmm. That costs Speaker McCarthy his job as speaker. But if Johnson does that, McCarthy thinks that the Republicans who pushed him out simply don't have the stomach to try to push him out, pick Johnson out, if he does the same thing. So we'll see how that plays out. But that is very important at this key moment. Next week, the funding deadline. Yeah, next Friday. Mike Johnson's keeping his cards close to his vest right now too in terms of what he might do. Uh, he, McCarthy also brought up some tensions he had with the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple of things. One, she occupied uh, space, office space, which is a valuable commodity in the Capitol, uh, close to the House floor after she was ousted, uh, after she stepped aside as the Speaker. But she was ousted from that spot, the mm -hmm. office space, 
because of Kevin McCarthy. He said, well, now there's another former speaker, so I'm sorry. That was, he was downplayed at her concerns that she raised. Also, he said that she told him back in December that she would not support an effort to oust him for the speakership, saying that would be bad for the House. And so he is very concerned, not just at the eight Republicans who pushed him out, the former speaker, the current House Democratic leader, who all voted to kick him out of the speakership along with those eight Republicans. So even though it's been more than a month since he lost the job, all that very fresh on his mind is the adjust to life as a rank and file member. Yeah, harboring a lot of resentment there. Yeah. All right, Manu Raju, thank you. Excellent interview. And you can see more of Manu's interview with Kevin McCarthy on Inside Politics Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. So, Senator Manchin may be coy about any possible presidential ambitions, but someone else is not and just announced a 2024 bid. That's coming up. And we are back with our 2024 lead and the battle for control of the U.S. Senate getting more interesting today as Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced that he is not running for re-election. So let's discuss with our panel, Eva McKen, starting with you. Look, you have a very popular Republican, Jim Justice, already running for Manchin's seat. It's likely, it's expected, right, that he's going to flip this seat. This is a big blow to Democrats. It, it does seem that way, or Congressman Alex Mooney, who's also competing for the Republican nomination. Certainly Republicans are well positioned in West Virginia. Though if you speak to Democrats, they argue, and you know this being from the South, yeah. uh, Pam, being from Kentucky, that they that no state should completely be seated, right? That there is a working class message for West Virginia voters and you should not throw up your hands uh, and give up uh, here. But it's difficult in that state. Paula uh, Jean Swearingen, she's from coal country. She ran a great campaign in 2018, got lots of attention. She ran again in 2020 and lost by 40 points uh, to Shelley Moore Capito, who's currently representing West Virginia in the Senate. So it's not an easy environment for Democrats in that state. Yeah, at the very least, it'll be a huge fight. And Manchin, Alice, was intentionally vague in that video he put out about running for president, right? That's the big question. He certainly, though, did not close the door. No, he did not. And of course, we have the no labels campaign that's out there, uh, certainly laying the groundwork for a candidate just like Joe Manchin. But as you said, he did outline his plans for the future, really working to travel across the country, bring this country together in a more moderate, cohesive way. And certainly whether or not he's the head of that or just working for that movement, that's great. And, and to his credit, look, he has been a tremendous uh, senator for people of West Virginia with a moderate voice, been a true public servant, not a self-servant. But I can tell you this, Republicans are excited about this announcement. Steve Daines, who is the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, said this afternoon, we like our odds in West Virginia. So that gives us the opportunity potentially not only to pick up West Virginia, there are two other key seats that are potential pickups for Republicans. That is Montana as well as Ohio. So if that were to be the case, then good news for Republicans and possibly regaining control in the Senate. Okay. okay, Pam, let's take it broader than just what's going on in the Senate uh, and the idea of what this means for organizing as a political party in the modern era. Joe Manchin is a millionaire a couple of times over, which is very disconnected from the majority of people in West Virginia. And he is also an older white man. So if you're looking at the idea of appealing to a moderate audience that either Trump or Biden don't appeal to, Manchin checks a lot of the boxes that have been problematic for voters that are younger, that are more diverse. So it's not a guarantee that what he has to offer is something that American voters actually want in the presidency. 
We're also learning about uh, Jill Stein announcing the, the surprise uh, presidential bid today. She is seeking the Green Party's 2024 nomination. And the question is always, what is this going to mean for Democrats and Republicans? What do you think, Eva? Well, I think there is an appetite for her candidacy among the progressive left right now who are very angry at President Biden, specifically for his foreign policy response right now in the Middle East that they argue is not uh, humanizing Palestinians enough. So it does make sense why Jill Stein sort of sees a pathway for at least for her to be in the conversation. But, you know, we have all covered politics in this country. And for a long time, there there has never been sort of any pathway for a third party candidate. I suspect this year it will be no different. Yeah, the pathway for third party is often being the spoiler candidate, right? Our RFK Jr. running as an independent is likely to pull voters away from exactly. Trump. Exactly, that's the question. Right, and Jill Stein, where would she pull voters from? And is that in enough of a margin that at a time when black and brown voter enthusiasm is low, do, who does that hurt and in which states? You look at Florida, you look at mm -hmm. uh, North Carolina, looking at Michigan. That's what the 2024 candidates really have to map right. out. And, and, and you look at the polls and how tight it is between Trump and Biden right now. You know, when you have a candidate like Jill Stein throwing their hat in the ring, how does that impact the math? I also want to ask you about your party in particular here, uh, Alice, after the debate last night. Um, let's take a listen to some of the highlights. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. Donald Trump's a lot different guy than he was in 2016. He said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. I'm sick of Republicans losing. She made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer. Do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? I right. first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, what is your reaction to what you saw? Look, it's great to have a debate. It's great to have the candidates out there in contrast on the issues. But look, Vivek Ramaswamy did himself zero favors last night. His campaign after the debate said we dropped bombs. He bombed with women. The insults he had were embarrassing. Look, this guy's out there on the stage so desperately wanting a big bro hug from Tucker Carlson, uh, as well as Elon Musk and, and Joe Rogan. It was embarrassing. And all he did throughout the night, every single powerful woman in his eyesight, he attacked Nikki Haley for wearing heels and supposedly being a bad mother because her daughter's on TikTok, going after uh, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, for losing since 2017, when it is Donald Trump's fault the Republicans have lost so significantly. And also uh, Kristen Welker, the, the, the moderator of the debate saying she is basically the face of fake news and look that does not win him any votes with women they look at that and look at him as a, a, a frat boy and not a serious uh, candidate for the president of the united states yeah, he's making the mistake of thinking that as a young brown man he can do exactly what donald trump did but donald trump has the voters already in his pocket and that's a challenge for everybody there uh, it was interesting to see nikki haley show up with stilettos to a knife fight um but and i, and I appreciated that uh, because so many of us do have to run around in heels but nobody on that stage actually spoke to people like me women who are suburban and mothers about staying out of our healthcare issues staying out of you know our children and their choices in school and what, what they might be when they grow up and that's in their infighting they're missing that deeply compelling message of values so i want to actually talk about that a little bit more about you know women and their healthcare 
rights and so forth because you know the issue of abortion was looming large in fact it didn't come up i think until 90 minutes into the debate um but when it did come up this is how the candidates responded let's listen to what uh, governor ron DeSantis said in particular he blamed and how he blamed the loss in ohio all the stuff that's happened to the pro-life cause, uh, they have been caught flat-footed on these referenda, and they have been losing the referenda. So did any of you, and I'll let either anyone jump in here, did any of you get a sense that any of them have figured out how to get ahead of this issue, how to address it? Of course, after we saw all those big Democratic gains um, with the momentum on abortion rights. No, to me, it seems like they're still flailing on a consistent strategy as a party here. Overall, though, I don't think that the debate is really going to move the needle all that much. It is more consequential, the work that they're doing in these states. I had an Iowa pastor tell me he was previously supporting Vivek Ramaswamy. Now he's in Governor DeSantis's camp, due in part to the, uh, to the support from the, governor, from the governor of Iowa but for DeSantis. DeSantis didn't even talk about that last night, yeah, right? Yeah. Surprisingly. And that's probably more important than, than the theatrics last night. Yeah. All right, ladies, thank you so much. Great discussion. Up next on the lead, CNN's 90 Minutes Inside Gaza, the visible fresh wounds of war one month into conflict. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. You were looking at video from Gaza just moments ago where flares are lighting up the night sky and Israeli forces are fighting with Hamas. CNN's Warren Lieberman has a firsthand look inside Gaza today. And we want to warn our viewers, CNN reported from Gaza under an Israel Israeli Defense Forces escort at all times, which is a condition for journalists to embed with the IDF. Media outlets must submit footage filmed in Gaza to the Israeli military for review, but CNN did not submit its script for this report to the IDF, and CNN had editorial control over this final product. Through the breach, we enter northern Gaza at the Erez border crossing. The land here, once fertile farmland, is barren and the trees that might have provided enemy cover destroyed. In the distance, smoke from an Israeli airstrike is a stark reminder that this is day 34 of a war that may stretch much longer. On Thursday, the IDF chief of staff and the head of the country's internal security service entered Gaza and promised strength through cooperation. Everyone is doing everything, said General Herzi Alevi, just so you can be as strong as possible. Along our path in northern Gaza, the signs of civilian life have given way to the constant hum of drones and the distant echoes of artillery. Our time with the IDF began at the coordination base for the border crossing, the first international media to visit the site. The terror attack on October 7th hit hard here, the scars of machine gun fire and RPGs still visible. The base was mostly empty on the holiday but not entirely. The IDF says nine soldiers were killed here and three kidnapped. It took 12 hours for Israel to regain control of the base 
Now it's one of the main gates to Gaza. A month into the war, more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza, according to the Hamas-controlled Palestinian health ministry there. The IDF says 35 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the Strip since the start of the incursion. The October 7th attack by Hamas in Israel killed more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians. We stop at an overlook near the town of Jabalia. One of the things uncovered here on this hill near Jabalia is a meeting point of three different tunnels. And you can see if you take a look, that's one, two, three. They came together here and it let Hamas move underground quickly below the feet and out of sight. Colonel Tal, the tank commander, says there were many explosives here. There were many trenches. There were a lot of weapons and ammunition. We found here a storage site with many explosives against tanks, RPGs. Even from a distance, the scale of the destruction is stunning. Apartment buildings, homes, neighborhoods decimated. Colonel Tal says the area is almost completely evacuated. We don't see civilians in our eyes. We see sometimes terrorists, but the majority of civilians haven't been here in a while. They've all gone south in the direction of the heart of the Strip. As we talk, we hear rocket fire and see the trails of the launches, triggering red alerts in Ashdod. After about 90 minutes inside northern Gaza, we make our way out, hugging the border wall for safety. Even here, so close to the exit, we stop briefly so the dust clears and we can make sure the way ahead is safe. In the distance, once again, the smoke from another strike. The IDF says they have encircled Gaza City and are moving in, working their way towards the heart of the city. The IDF spokesperson also said earlier today they would be expanding the ground operation. Pam. And Oren, for the first time, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad says it has two hostages and is prepared to release two of them? Yes, that's a statement we saw from Islamic Jihad just a short time ago. Islamic Jihad had claimed they had some 30 hostages shortly after October 7th. That number nearly impossible to verify. The IDF did respond to the statement from Islamic Jihad saying, basically, look, it's important that there is a proof of life, but they won't address it beyond that, viewing it as psychological terror. Pam. CNN's Orrin Lieberman, thank you so much, Orrin. Well, new images also give us a glimpse of southern Gaza, the dire conditions where civilians are supposed to be finding safe shelter up next. Today, a quote, first step, according to the White House, in easing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Israel agreed to formalize a daily four-hour pause in military operations there. The stop in violence will allow aid to flow in and civilians to get out, but a senior Israeli official says it'll only apply to specific neighborhoods in the war zone. And as CNN's Salma Abdelaziz reports, there is much more to be done to ease the suffering of more than a million displaced Gazans. If you are among those still in northern Gaza, this is what life looks like now, the heart of a battle zone. May God protect us, this man says. Those who do not have the means to leave, we will have to stay where we are. It's as if they've sentenced us to death. The Israeli military continues to call on all residents of northern Gaza to move south. It is the forced exodus of an entire population, Palestinians say. But some are unable or unwilling to heed the warning. 
Thousands of them are taking shelter at Gaza City hospitals. Among them, patients that can't be moved, families too afraid to travel through bombs and bullets, and medical staff, loyal to a duty of care. Dr. Mohammed Abu Namuz says he has sent his family away, but he will stay behind. What can be done? There's no other way out of this. There is no safety, he says. That's why it's best if I get my family out so I can focus on treating patients. On Wednesday alone, as many as 50,000 people made the perilous journey south via the time-limited corridors set up by the Israeli military. They're moving because they understand that Hamas has lost control in the north and that the south is safer, a safer area where they receive medicine, water and food. They understand it's an improvement. But the south is not safe and hardly an improvement. Israeli airstrikes level homes here too. And the conditions for the estimated 1.5 million now cramped in this corner of the enclave are described as inhumane. Thousands of the displaced are living on the street. There is no aid, no water, the toilets are closed, she says, and no bakeries. We get a single loaf of bread every three or four days after waiting in long lines for half a day. And UN shelters are overcrowded. At one site, at least 600 people must share a single toilet, the UN says. And as for humanitarian assistance, it is so far a drop in the ocean of need. This is the gateway to a hellish nightmare. And then I see in front of me the lifeline that would bring relief and humanitarian assistance, which until now has not been enough. Woefully inadequate. The conditions are so dire that this family says they decided to leave a UN shelter and move back into the ruins of their bombed-out home. We're still afraid, of course, for our children, but it's the lesser of two evils, this father says. At least it's better than being surrounded by disease, hunger and fear. At least here, our children are at home. With three out of every four Gazans internally displaced, the UN estimates, home is what so many dream of here, but many fear that sense of normalcy will never return. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And thank you to CNN's uh, Salma for that report. Israel's right-wing government is changing the rules for members of its military, and one soldier's story had a lot to do with it. Jake Tapper met with him in Israel, and he's going to share that story up next. Just in, the Pentagon says at least 56 U.S. troops have been injured in the ongoing attacks carried out by Iranian-backed groups against U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. Some injuries were described as traumatic brain injuries, while others were said to be less serious. The Pentagon says all 56 service members have returned to duty, including those who were treated at a military hospital. The Israeli government is setting a new precedent for how the military recognizes gay couples, and it's due in part to this story of an IDF soldier and his fiancée who will never get to see their wedding day. The officers from the army came to my house, and they, haven't, they didn't say anything. They didn't need to. It was the moment Omer Ohana's worst fears became official. His fiance and the future they planned together were suddenly gone, just days before their wedding. When were you supposed to get married? October 20th. It 
was supposed to be a weekend of a wedding. Omer and his love, Reserve Captain Sagi Golan, had made a deal the morning of October 7th to check in with each other every hour. When the messages stopped coming, Omer turned to their guest list. I called each one of his... Each one that was tagged uh, as Sagi's army in the wedding invites, and I started you know, just gathering information about what, why Sagi isn't answering it. And inside of me, I, we already knew. But we had a, we had a hope. Maybe he's injured. Maybe he was kidnapped. And maybe he was taken as a hostage. Omer and Sagi's mother waited four excruciating days before they got the news. I drove to his base, the main base he serves on, and then I got my answer that they didn't know what was happening with Sagi and some of his soldiers. Then I understood. It wasn't an official answer, but Omer and I already understood what they were saying. Sagi was killed Saturday night at Kibbutz Be'eri, while evacuating innocent families from one of the most dangerous and deadly attacks of the war. When he saw what those scum of humans did there and when he saw those awful atrocities, he said to his soldiers, we are fighting for our home. We are fighting for our existence. And we will fight until we win. There is nothing that can compensate on the fact of all of the children and all of the women he saw butchered on the street when he walked there. He died with those images. He died with... <laughs> he died after he picked up a little children and hugged him. After he evacuated all of those Israeli families from the shelters. While working through unimaginable grief, Omer says the fact that he and Sagi were a gay couple made his worst moments even harder including the fact that there was no place for a same-sex partner to sign on the post-mortem paperwork. Through his whole life, he volunteered in so many countries and in so many platforms, and it all was for equality. With his death, I experienced inequality that I never thought I would feel. You know, sadness is always the main feeling that controls your heart, but um, but when you understand stuff, you're also filled with anger. After Omer spoke out about his experience, the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, passed an amendment this week recognizing the same-sex partners of fallen service members as widows and widowers. They and other common law partners will now receive the same access to financial, medical, and societal benefits as straight married couples. But Sagi was a light, and I'm going to remember him as a light. And everybody will know. And everybody will know. Well, that light's going to burn for a... for a long time. Yep. But it's going to light the Israeli law book. It's going to light the Knesset. It's going to unify the people. In Israel, only marriages between men and women of the same religion can be performed. 
even though Omer and Sagi's marriage would not have been recognized, that did not stop them from planning every detail of the ceremony. <laughs> Omer is so grief-stricken, he can hardly tell me that these flowers from his fiancée Sagi's funeral were the same bouquets intended for their wedding day. It was supposed to be the centerpieces for the, for the wedding. This is Sagi's suit. The color of his eyes. This is my suit, a white one. I'm so sorry. Jake Tapper, CNN, Herzliya, Israel. Well, if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.